Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have one holy heck of a show for you this week. We are going to talk to the author of The Knicks of the 90s, Ewing Oakley Starks and the Brawlers that Almost Won It All. He's also the host of the new book Sports Pod, which I've never been on. His name is Paul Nepper. So excited to talk to Paul Nepper because I really did love this book. Also, I have some choice words about Congress escalating pressure on the NFL to release the Washington football team report. Very fascinating stuff. And in these choice words, you can definitely hear who my Just Stand Up winner is for this week. That would be Emily Applegate. And my Just Sit Down award, that would be Dan Snyder, who can take all the seats. We also have the segment of the show that's lighting up the internet, Jake's Takes, where we talk about his picks for week seven of the NFL season. And we also got uh, some NBA picks with a very special guest. Okay, it's Jake. But we're going to talk about our picks for the forthcoming season, and that's always fun. Uh, but let's start the show where I want to start the show, and that's with Paul Nepper to talk about the Knicks of the 1990s. So why are we collectively obsessed with this 1990s team that didn't even win an NBA Finals? And then a follow-up, why are you so interested in this 1990s team that never won a Finals? Uh, okay, first part is um, I, I am, I would say a lot of our obsession with this team um, has to do with the fact that uh, the Knicks have been so bad throughout the entire 21st century until last season, really, um, you know, for the Knicks have the worst. The Knicks have the worst record in the NBA in the 21st century. Um, it's been it's just been a dismal was a dismal 20 years. It looks like things are finally trending in the right direction. Um, so I think that's a lot of it. I think, you know, when there's nothing to uh, celebrate in the present you tend to look towards the past um the other thing is i think those teams were um the way they competed really struck a chord with with nick fans and um you know guys like starks and oakley and mason um were real underdogs in their own way and uh and played demonstrated you know they weren't the most talented guys in the league but they played with a tremendous amount of heart and I think that really resonated with fans. Um, as far as my interest in the team, that's, you know, I grew up in New York. I, I lived in Queens till I was eight and then moved out to Long Island. Um, I was always a big basketball fan. You know, when I was when I was young, it kind of started. Um, I, I got into St. John's, you know, back when the Big East was king and, and you know, the Mullen and Walter Berry teams and then. Uh, and then when Patino came to the Knicks, that's when I got really into the Knicks. And, um, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm of that age, you know, the Riley years were, I graduated high school in 95. So the four years Riley was there was my four years of high school, which is kind of like prime, you know, sports fan period. Um, I was still young and, and very into it in, 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 for the Van Gundy years as well. So, um, I, I, I grew up on those teams. Those are the teams that I, I made me really, I guess, fall in love with the game of basketball. You know, a lot of people talk about the bad boy Pistons being the rough and tumble team. They come out of the late 1980s. Were these New York Knicks badder than the bad boys? That's a great question. Um, 
Wow. Uh, I don't know if I could say they were better. Um, I think they came close. Uh, they were similar. Um, I know that Riley, who of course was the coach of those Knicks teams, in a lot of ways wanted his, those Knicks to emulate the bad boys. You know, those bad boys teams knocked off his his Lakers uh, in in uh, '89. And I think Riley thought this is the way the league is going. This is how you win in the NBA now. And so he encouraged that kind of mentality. But uh, those bad boys were bad. But it was close. Hmm. What I find amazing is that Pat Riley led the high-flying Showtime Lakers in the 80s. And then these lunch pail 79 to 75 game Knicks. What makes Pat Riley a great coach? Uh... You know, I think the, I think sometimes I think we over, we overvalue coaches. We overrate coaches. I mean, you know, every, every, every great coach, every hall of fame coach, especially in basketball had hall of fame players, right? That's your, to extent you're only as good as your players are. Um, but Riley was, uh, he had a way of getting guys to buy into his system. It was, it was, and that's, I think with the, all the great coaches, really, it's about buy-in, you know, all these guys know X's and O's and, and ultimately a lot of the, of the court comes down to your talent, but um, he had a way of, of, of challenging guys and getting guys to accept their roles. And as he put it, become superstars in their roles. And um, I, I think that was it ultimately the buy-in. I mean, there are other things as well. He was uh, meticulously prepared um, you know, obsessive about his job, but, you know, a lot of guys, you know, we tend to think of guys like, like Jeff Van Gundy back in the day or, or Spolstra or guys like that as kind of film, film junkies, you know, gym rats, guys who just are up all night watching film. We don't think of Riley that way. Riley has more of the, you know, the Hollywood pretty boy image, but he very much fit that mold. Um, and so he was obsessive and a lot of the reason the guys bought into his, his system and his approach, um, as they put it to me was that they knew that he was 100% committed to winning and all about the team and everything he did and everything he asked of them was for the team. Um, there was no ego there, which is interesting to hear because you think of Riley as a big personality, a big ego guy, but it was all about the team and that. That's what got the buy-in. And ultimately, I think it was the buy-in that, that makes him a great coach. Yeah, I think it's amazing that Pat Riley, I think one of the reasons he connects with players is that he's somebody who could be above them as this iconic figure, but he's all about team. And I think that has resonance with the Heat today. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And then and then as I, I think Riley would be the first to say, too, the what, you know, uh, his his demeanor, his gravitas, all that in in and of itself wasn't enough. He needed Patrick Ewing more than anything to buy in. Um, in this league, you need I don't care who you are, how great a coach you are. You know, if Phil Jackson didn't have buy in from Michael Jordan, he would have been gone. It wouldn't have worked. Um, Pop Pop always says he's he's a great coach because David Robinson and Tim Duncan allowed him to coach them. And so I think you know, I think Ewing getting falling in line with Riley and going along with the program um, helped help Riley a tremendous amount as well. These were teams of characters. What character stands out to you? 
probably Oak. Um, as you said, there were a lot of good ones. Mason's a great character as well. Um, I, I think for me, it was Oakley. Um, everybody I talked to, you know, I, I interviewed close to 100 people for the book. Everybody has an Oakley story <laughs> to the point that I would, I would, I would, at a certain point in doing the interviews, I just started asking people, okay, give me your best Oak story. Um, you know, and 70% and of those stories about are, were about what a tough, physical, intimidating, scary dude he was. But then 30% of those stories were about um, what a sweetheart he was and how, you know, if you were one of his guys, he would move heaven and earth to to help you out in in the biggest or smallest way possible. Um, and just a lot of little gestures that he did for people that you could hear talking to them 25, 30 years later, how moved they were they were by some of the things that he did for them. Um, just simple things like, you know, I, the, I talked to the ball boy, the former ball, ball boy, Steve Massiello, who's now the head coach at Manhattan College. And, you know, he, he said when he had his eighth grade dance, Oak gave him his car with a driver to take him and his girlfriend to the dance. And he said, he'll never forget it. You know, just little things like that. And the kind of, you know, from the, the janitorial staff to, to, you know, people high up in the front office, Oak was um, very gentle in a lot of ways, um, but he also had this, you know, there were also stories of him just clocking people in practice for virtually no reason. So um, he, he was a pretty fascinating character. You did over 100 interviews for this book. What interview stands out for you? Um, I'll say two. One was Dave Chekets, uh, who was the president of the Knicks, and then um, moved up to be president of Madison Square Garden. And he was just extremely forthcoming um, and uh, extremely helpful because he was there for virtually the entire period of the book I cover. And, uh, you know, in an important role where he um, really had his finger on the pulse of everything that was going on in the organization. Um, so he was he was excellent. The other guy I would say was Rudy Tomjanovich and uh, Rudy T. It's um, I interviewed him, of course, because the he coached the Rockets team. The Knicks played in the finals in 94. And it's hard to explain it. And it, and it kind of sounds cheesy, but there was uh, a genuine warmth that emanated over the phone from that man. I, I got off the phone and I, I, I just I mean, he was a good interview. He answered my questions well, but there was just a kindness and a warmth to him that came across over the phone that just really, really made an impression on me. Who's maybe the most overlooked, interesting character in the narrative of the 1990s Knicks? Uh, one guy I would say is Larry Johnson. Um, LJ was, uh, I was a huge Mason fan. Um, and I wasn't happy when they traded Mason for LJ. Um, and as you know, you're you and I are around similar age. You recall LJ was a beast when he came to the league. I mean, he, and and a huge figure. The whole the grandmama commercials. I mean, he was a big deal. But he hurt his back, and he wasn't the same player anymore. And he had an exorbitant contract. Um, and during his time with the Knicks, I always you know there was there's the four point play, which which was memorable and fantastic. But I always thought he was kind of washed up and was overpaid. Um, in talking to all the guys on the team, I didn't realize what an integral part he was to that team. 
um, to team chemistry. He essentially was the, the leader of that team, the emotional leader of that team the, of the late 90s. Um, I had numerous people tell me he's the best teammate they had at any level of basketball. Um, mm. That he was just, you know, the, the consummate locker room guy. Uh, if you were struggling or upset, he'd, he'd take you out to dinner. Um, you know, when, when the Knicks traded for Sprewell, LJ asked uh, the coaching staff or management, whoever, he said, put, put Sprewell's locker next to mine so I could kind of, you know, welcome to the team and take care of him. Um, in 99, when Camby first was traded to the Knicks, Van Gundy wasn't playing him much, and Camby talked about how you know, LJ really put his arm around him and you said, it'll be okay. You'll get your shot, keep your head up, that kind of thing. So I, I, I gained a, a great deal of respect for the role he played on those, those late 90s teams. These 1990s Knicks, they're defined by Pat Riley at the beginning of the 90s, Jeff Van Gundy and that team that went to the finals at the end of the 90s. Where does Don Nelson fit in, who coached the team briefly in the mid-90s with all of his innovations? And why didn't that work out? Yeah, so Nelly was there. Nelly replaced Riley when Riley left. Um, they wanted a veteran coach. They felt they had a veteran team that could compete right away, so they wanted a veteran guy. Um, Ernie Grunfeld, who was the Knicks GM, had had played for uh, Nelly in, in Milwaukee, so they had a very good relationship. And um, and Nelly, you know, came in with a sterling reputation he was a three-time coach of the year he you know is, is now he's the all-time leader in wins in nba history um it was an interesting fit because the knicks were a tough slow grinded out defensive team and of course nelly was known for his offensive ingenuity um so it's easy to look back and say why you know um that didn't make sense but uh, talking to Grunfeld and Chekets, the thinking was, well, we have a great defensive team in place. We have a veteran squad. Um, what we need help on is offense. You know, our offense is pretty predictable. It's basically dumping into Patrick. And, you know, if he gets double teamed, he kicks it out. We need some offensive ingenuity. And, and that's what Nelly could bring. Um, he got off on a really bad start with Patrick. He was kind of critical of Patrick early on. Patrick didn't like being criticized. Uh, there was some leftover tension between Nelly and Starks. From Starks actually played with him for a year in Golden State before Starks came to the Knicks. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think ultimately it was a bad fit. Um, you know, he tried to, new things. Uh, it didn't. It's tough to say, you know, he gets a lot of the blame and deservedly so, but I think the players deserve some blame as well. They were an older group kind of set in their ways and weren't willing to adapt and try some of the things he was he was suggesting. Um, ultimately, the biggest problem was he, he alienated his best player. Um, he was very critical of, of Patrick. And then he went to management and suggested they should trade Patrick for Shaquille O'Neal. And Patrick got wind of that. And that was really the end of that relationship. Um, you know, he alienated Starks, who was very popular in the locker room. So he kind of lost the team. Um, really a, a clash of personalities in certain ways. And then they fired him after uh, 55 games and brought in Van Gundy. Maybe you could give some insight for some young journalists who might be listening to this show. 
you, you did over a hundred interviews for this. Uh, how did you track everybody down? How are you able to make this book come off? Yeah, it's a, it's a two-step process. Uh, the first is tracking the people down. And then the second step, of course, is getting people to talk to you. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a Zach Lowe or a Bill Simmons or a Jack McCallum. You know, I'm not a big name in the industry. So um, it is a bit of a challenge. Um, some guys are easy to track down in that they're still in and around the league. You know, a guy like Derek Harper is, I know, is is uh, calling games for the Mavericks. So you reach out to Mavs PR and you get them that way. Um, and then some guys you ask, we'll put you in touch with other guys. Um, but it's you, you just you have to be uh, you have to be resilient. You have to be disciplined. You have to, you know, I mean, Oak, I tried to get to Oak. 10 different ways, you know, over a period of years, it was a constant search. Ultimately, I got to him through, I interviewed his college and asked his college coach if he could put me in touch with Oak, and he did. Um, but it's about just, just you know, sticking with it because you go down one, one avenue and it, it doesn't, you can't get them and, you know, you try another. Um, some of the guys I got as simple as, you know, their search, their search, uh, websites where you could search and find people's email addresses or phone numbers. And, and I, and I did it that way. Um, so the best, the best advice I could, I could give is just, you have to just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and, uh, always make that next call because you never know where that next call can lead. Um, and I also learned that, yes, you know, I, I did some writing for Bleacher Report. I don't have tr extensive experience. Um, but there's kind of a, presumption of competence i call it you know if you call someone you say hey i'm writing a book about the 90s knicks you know i don't think these guys are getting calls all the time saying i'm writing a book i think if you say you're writing a book they assume you know what you're doing and you're writing a book so um some of my concerns about not being a big name uh they kind of melted away early on when i realized people just assumed that i knew what i was doing what did you learn writing this book that you didn't know before you got started? I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a line that I, I, I saw a story I learned um, that I found. Well, first of all, one thing is I learned a lot about how Riley exited um, because that was kind of shrouded in mystery and it was a he said, he said thing. And um, kind of the breakdown in the relationship with Riley and check it's. Um, and ultimately I think they were, they were both somewhat to blame. I think ego, did get involved on, on both parts. Um, a fascinating story I, I learned with Riley was, um, I, I spoke to uh, an old friend of Riley's, his name is Dick Butera. And I spoke to him because he was very involved in negotiating Riley's deal with the Heat. He told me he hung, he was hanging out with Riley the day of game seven of the NBA finals in 1994 against the Rockets, which of course the Knicks lost and and um, John Starks shot an infamous two for 18. Um, and Butera and Riley are hanging out in the hotel room beforehand. And Butera tells me they're going in the elevator and they're about to go down and leave for the arena for uh, at the summit in Houston. And Riley turns to Butera and he says, well, buddy, I know three guys are going to show up tonight. Me, you and John. John meaning John Starks. 
Riley was that certain that Starks was going to come through that night in game seven. And of course he shot two for 18. And to hear that Riley had said that before the game was just jaw dropping. Yeah. We got to talk about John Starks. I mean, John Starks, I guess that explains it. I mean, I remember watching that game and wondering why Hubert Davis wasn't in when Starks was one for nine. I thought, gee, isn't this why we signed Rolando Blackman for moments just like this? But, you know, Pat Riley's guy was John Stark, so he was going to go down with him. I guess that explains it. He was Riley's guy. Yeah. Riley said once that Starks reminded him of all the players he ever coached, Starks was the player who reminded him most of himself. Yeah. You know, something I always ask folks who come on this podcast is about music. What was your soundtrack when writing this book? Well, beyond the obvious, go New York, go New York, go. Uh, um, I listened to, uh, it's funny, I, I've, I listened to Guns N' Roses, the Use Your Illusions uh, albums. Uh, I, I, I found myself listening to it more when I did this book, and I think it's because that's, you know, I'm, I loved Guns N' Roses. I don't listen to it as much now. I'm older. I'm mellow. You know, I'm, it's, I've mellowed out some, but, uh, you know, now it's more, I don't know, Tom Petty, a little something, a little more chill. But um, it brought me back a little bit to that time, uh, at that time in high school when I was listening to uh, Guns N' Roses. Mm. So I would say the Use Your Illusions albums. Paul Nepper, thank you so much for your time. How can people keep up with you? How can folks contact you? What's the best way to stay in touch with Paul Nepper? Yeah, you can follow me at uh, on Twitter at it's at Paulinep. That's P A U L I E K N E P. Uh, you could email me my uh, my full name Paulnepper at gmail.com. Um, that's about it. Those are the best ways. Wow! Thank you so much for the interview. We'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, in a move that has sent shockwaves through NFL circles, two Democratic members of Congress sent a letter late on Thursday to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell calling on the league to provide Congress with the results of its internal investigation into the Washington football team's workplace culture of toxic predatory sexism. The treatment of women workers, including the team's cheerleaders, as extensively documented by the Washington Post, was supposed to be central to the inquiry. But the results of this investigation, which people have been waiting on for many a month, look disturbingly likely never to see the light of day. Once again, it seemed that scandal-ravaged, incompetent franchise owner Daniel Snyder, easily the most reviled man in Washington now that a certain orange somebody is no longer in town, was going to skate. 
Yet last week, out of the 650,000 emails being reviewed for the investigation, a small handful were leaked showing Las Vegas Raiders coach John Gruden regaling former Washington team president Bruce Allen with all kinds of racist, sexist, and homophobic dreck over the course of seven years, starting when Gruden was working for ESPN. Outrage ensued, and Gruden was bounced from his lucrative coaching job. And still questions lingered, though. Who is responsible for the leaks, and why has the only tangible result of this investigation been the punishment of a coach with no connection to the team? It was all very curious, and the most popular theory being bandied about was that Dan Snyder, or someone close to Snyder, leaked the emails to both distract attention from himself and spotlight Allen as the real culprit in this stew of predatory sexism. Yet if that were in fact the plan, it is now looking about as clever as one of Snyder's countless failed coaching hires. There is now a greater appetite for not only the investigation's conclusions, but also the release of all of the 650,000 emails so there can be a true exposure of all the bigotry that lurks in the NFL behind closed doors. They could provide precious insight into not only the Washington scandal, but also perhaps into why there are so few black executives and whether there was collusion enacted to keep a team from signing former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. The two members of Congress, Representatives Carolyn B. Maloney, Chairwoman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and Raja Krishnamurthy, now want the League to deliver its investigation to them by November 4th. In a five-page letter to Goodell in the League, they wrote, we have serious concerns about what appears to be a widespread abuse of workplace at the WFT and about the NFL's handling of this matter. Communications between league management and WFT leadership also raise questions about the league's asserted impartiality in these investigations. The NFL's lack of transparency about the problems it recently uncovered raised questions about the seriousness with which it has addressed bigotry, racism, sexism, and homophobia, setting troubling precedent for other workplaces. The RASC also comes on the heels of the demand by 10 former employees of the club that multiple sponsors, including Nike and Amazon, press the NFL for detailed findings of the investigations. In other words, if whoever leaked those emails was hoping to deflect attention away from the Washington football team, the results have been quite different. After a week of furious coverage about Gruden, the leak has refocused eyes on the investigation itself and why the promised results have been under lock and key. I reached out to Emily Applegate, a former marketing coordinator with the WFT who has been the central whistleblower about the team's culture and the public face of many of the former and current employees who have spoken out yet fear reprisal. Applegate said about the news of congressional intervention, I'm ecstatic. This is exactly the support we need to get the commissioner to release the report. We've been working hard for months to get answers from the NFL and it's exciting to see we're getting close. I asked her if she thought that the other 649,990 emails should be released and she said, absolutely. Those few emails show a very small portion of the workplace culture there. I have no doubt there's plenty more to learn from the rest. I also spoke over the weekend, as people who listen to this podcast know, to former Green Bay Packers executive Andrew Brandt, who talked about how in NFL franchise ownership circles, there is an in-group and an out-group, and Dan Snyder is definitely in the in-group. But if this gets too public, particularly if Snyder played a role in perpetuating the team's toxic culture, 
then the long-standing wishes of the Washington football team faithful could finally be fulfilled, and Snyder would be forced to sell the languishing ones proud franchise that he has spent over 20 years running into the ground. If that day does come to pass, it will hopefully be remembered that it was whistleblowers like Emily Applegate who brought down a seemingly untouchable billionaire by performing the radical and courageous act of risking the public glare and telling the truth. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. As promised, we always do our NBA picks at the start of every season. It's not exactly where sports and politics collide, but it's where sports and my joy collide. That's why we do it. You know, in years past, we've had people like Hall of Famer David Aldrich, Miami Post writer Michael Lee, uh, the late, great Sekou Smith. Join us on this program to talk about our NBA picks for coming seasons. And this year, we have a no less esteemed guest to talk it through. He's 13. It's Jake from Jake's Takes. Jake, how you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Good. Let's do these picks, baby. All right. This is the way we're going to do it. I'm going to say who I think is going to win the major awards. Jake's going to respond. And then Jake's going to say who thinks going to win that same award. And then I'm going to respond. But we're going to keep it going at a fast clip, okay? Okay. Oh, I should add this as well. We're going to do our picks. And then we're going to do, this is a nice wrinkle, our dark horse picks. Somebody who nobody's really talking about who could sneaky get in there and win this award. Okay. So first, MVP. I really do believe it's going to be Luka Doncic uh, of your Dallas Mavericks. I think that he has the potential for that, but I just I don't see that team getting to a high enough seed for him to win it. Unless Fair he enough. puts up some insane stats, which I think he's capable of doing. I okay. just don't think that they're good enough. All right, fair enough. Your MVP is? Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think that's a fantastic pick. I actually think in a lot of the things that I'm seeing, people are sleeping on that. But if for somebody who's a two-time MVP it's and, and coming off a 50-point finals game in Game 6 in the closeout game, it's bizarre to me how little I'm seeing Giannis's name uh, in that listing. So... I'm going to say that that's a great pick, actually. Props to you. All right, your Dark Horse MVP. My Dark Horse MVP is Clippers, guard, forward, wing, whatever you want to call him, Paul George. Okay, since the Clippers have about as much chance of winning 50 games this year as I have starting at point for the Washington Wizards, I don't love that pick. My MVP, and remember, we've had this conversation, is that picks are about narratives, meaning if somebody is part of a story... That's going to be something. And so my dark horse pick, and you've been wondering about it this whole time, I know. You think I'm going to say Bradley Beal, but I'm not going to say Bradley Beal because I think that's silly. My dark horse pick is the cat himself, Carl Anthony Towns. Because if the Minnesota T-Wolves surprise people and even sneak into the playoffs, this could be one of those seasons where he still gets the MVP. Honest and true, because of the ways in which his uh, family suffered during COVID. I, I like the pick. There's just one small problem to that. Okay. And that's injuries. All right. He's always been a kind of, he's always been a dude who just gets injured midway to the season. We'll and see. He's in the best shape of his life. He's in the best shape of his life. Okay. My rookie of the year, Cade Cunningham of the Detroit Pistons. I like the pick. He definitely has a shot because that team is kind of open right now. And 
that gives him room to score. Okay, who do you got? I have Rockets guard Jalen Green. I'll just say the same thing you just said. Uh, lots of minutes, lots of skills. He'll have the chance to put up counting stats. Great pick. My dark horse, and this is kind of interesting, you always look for who has going to have time to play. And that leads me to the worst team in the NBA, in my opinion, the Orlando Magic, and a rookie they have named Franz Wagner. What do you think? I like the pick. It's a real dark horse. I like him as a player. And I think, I mean, they have a lot of open minutes there too. Where they could just like put him in there. He can put up some good numbers. So I, I like that dark horse pick. Thank you. My rookie of the year dark horse pick is Pacers guard Chris Duarte. Well, obviously, props to you because I know you made these picks before the season began, right? Yes. Okay, so Duarte's been blowing up at the start of the year. He's 24 years old. I don't really know his story about why he's a 24-year-old rookie, but he certainly plays like somebody. Like, I remember when um, uh, Booker was 24. I think he was in his sixth season in the NBA, and Duarte plays that way. Okay, my favorite award, most improved player, MIP. I got Terrence Mann of the Clippers. He showed out in the playoffs. Um, He's going to have a ton of minutes with Kawhi out. I like Terrence Mann. I don't like that pick as much, but I can see where you're coming from. My my most improved player for this season is Cavaliers guard Darius Garland because I think he has so much potential. He's such a good player, in my opinion. Yeah, but it could be I wrong could franchise really, for him. I could really see him just skyrocketing up. I, I think that's a good pick, although I just don't know if the Cavs are the fit for him. My dark horse MIP is kind of an interesting one because he had a because I love MIP picks who are really good and then they make a leap to greatness. And so sticking with my T Wolves theme, I'm going to say Anthony Edwards with the idea that he's going to go from a solid, solid, solid should have been rookie of the year rookie to becoming somebody who might score 25 points a game. I don't think that that's enough to put him up there because I'm pretty sure he averaged like 18, maybe 19. That's a leap, though. He's going to have to average like 27 if he wants to win. And he also is going to have to... He has to also get other stats, too, if he really wants to win that award. But we'll see. Okay. My most improved player pick is 76ers guard, who's one of my favorite players in the NBA. 76ers guard... Tyrese Maxey. Mm, I think that team is about, about to is, is in implosion mode, so I don't know if anybody from that. I mean, I know we made these picks before the season, but anybody who saw the game on Friday night, the last three minutes of it between Brooklyn and Philly, where Philly was winning by something like 11 with three minutes left, and Brooklyn went on, I think, something like a 16-1 to run to end the game, something like that. I don't know. All right, I don't know if anybody from that team is going to do much. Uh, my defensive player of the year, a pick that I already despise, is uh, Anthony Davis. Who do you got? I know it's a terrible pick. Just tell me who you it's got. It's an okay pick. No, it's terrible. It's an okay pick. It's He's terrible. a great defender. I know I'm judging by two Lakers games, but it's <laughs> terrible. The only thing he's being defensive about is uh, uh, his defensive hands when he's throwing hands with Dwight Howard. Um, who's your deep boy? My deep boy is Heat Center, Bam and Abayo. Better pick. 
I mean, Anthony, he's gotten pick. a lot of blocks, Anthony Davis, still. Nah, now you're trying to make me feel better. My depoy, and this is an interesting one, because this might not seem like a dark horse, but it really is, because he's already considered one of the best defenders in the game. But my dark horse is Drew Holiday. And the reason what makes him a dark horse is look at the history of Defensive Player of the Year and how rarely it's a wing defender or a point guard defender and, and it, basically um, a perimeter defender. It just it doesn't happen often. And that's why I think it's a dark horse pick. He has the talent to do that, and I like that pick. My defensive player of the year, Dark Horse, is not a guard or a wing defender. In fact, it is Knicks center Mitchell Robinson, who I have loved since maybe his rookie year. Great pick. He's been a great defender his entire career. And I think he really has that potential to just step up for that team. Sixth man of the year, easiest thing I've ever done in my life. David Tegelu knows who I'm about to say without question. The man known as Trez. Montrez Harrell. Who you got? For the Wizards. We differ on a lot of things, but this is not one of them. Ah. As my sixth man of the year is also Wizards center Montrez Harrell. Okay. Awesome. Fist bump. Fist bump. All right. My sixth man of the year is awesomely dark horsey because it's a player who um, starts. And I just think he's going to be moved to the bench before the end of the year and just show out because I think he does better on the bench. And that's Kevin Porter Jr. of the Houston Rockets. Who's going to start over him? Doesn't matter. They're just going to think he does better as a sixth. Well, mine is going to be... Warriors guard Jordan Poole, who I picked before the season, but he's already been looking like a really good player. He's been getting a lot of minutes off the bench, and I really like him. I like the way he plays. He's he's, he's a good decision maker. I like Jordan Poole. All right. Coach of the year. Uh, As you'll you'll understand why I made this choice in a moment, but I like Mike Malone of the Denver Nuggets. Mike Malone of the Denver Nuggets. Mine... Is Bill's coach, sorry, not Bill's ha! coach, Bull's coach, Billy Donovan. Oh, I see why you messed that up. It's Bill's coach, Bully Donovan. <laughs> that works. All right, that's a good pick. Uh, Chicago's up and comer. If they make a nice little leap to the playoffs, he'll yeah. take him very seriously. My dark horse coach of the year is, of course, Wes Unsell Jr. of your Washington Wizards. I mean, and I've said that. I had this pick down before they started 2-0. First time they've started 2-0 since 2017. I mean, they've got some players with clamps on defense. I just love this team so much. I love this team so much, too, but he is not my Dark Horse Coach of the Year pick. In fact, my Dark Horse Coach of the Year pick is Celtics coach Ime Udoka. Oh, Interesting pick because like, they are in free fall after are. two games. It's I, I still have more than enough trust in him. I like him. And, I mean, they had a heartbreaking loss in the then first they, game. And then they had a... a cr- and then they got crushed by... It wasn't the Heat. I can't remember what team it was. It was not a great team, I don't think. But I, I, still, I still have trust in them. And in the finals, our last one, I got the Brooklyn Nets beating the Denver Nuggets. Brooklyn Nets and beating the Denver Nuggets? And that's even with Kyrie not there. I actually like them more with Kyrie. Is it there. really Brooklyn Nets and Denver Nuggets? All right, well, mm. my, my finals pick, my regular finals pick, is also Nets-Nuggets. But I have the Nets also winning. Hmm? I have Nets-Nuggets, too. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. I had that. 
That's, that's crazy. Nuggets. That's that's my. That's pick. crazy. And my dark horse, as I said, was the Wizards. Who's yours? To go to the finals. Do you have a dark horse to go? To? No, no, no. Of course not. Just a playoff dark horse. Oh. Why have my Dark Horse Finals pick? Oh, who? Talk to me. Well, my Dark Horse Finals pick, one is the Bulls, who I said that um, Billy Donovan was my coach of the year. Okay. And I think that team definitely has finals potential with all their pieces. They have so many, like, star players and star caliber players. And then my other Dark Horse Finals team is the Utah Jazz. And that might not seem like a Dark Horse pick because they're always really good in the regular season. But in in the... in the postseason, they just they always seem to choke, and they always seem to just just lose in like the semifinal round or something like that. But I think that they have potential to go go to the finals this year. Wow. Well, Jake, I gotta tell you, we've had David Aldridge, the Hall of Famer. We've had Michael Lee, who I adore. We've had uh, the late great Sekou Smith, my friend who passed, and I think you held yourself up well next to those folks. Nice job, buddy. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Gee, don't sound too appreciative. If someone said to me I hung well with people like D.A. and say Koob, I'd be a little more appreciative of the compliments. Grr. Okay, we'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now's the time for the part of the show that people seem to love more than the parts of the show that I'm in by myself. It's called Jake's Takes. This is when my kid Jacob, he will tell you who is going to win all the NFL games this week. And his record so far is quite remarkable. First and foremost, Jake, how are you doing, fella? I'm doing very good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So what's your record at this point? My record currently is 64 and 30. I went 11 and 3 last week. Pretty good. Pretty good indeed. Pretty, pretty good. But you picked against the Ravens last week, which is interesting. And they won 34 to 6. Let's see what happens this week. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. First and foremost, we're recording this on a Thursday. Thursday night, Broncos at Cleveland. No Baker Mayfield. Who do you like? So now there's no Baker Mayfield. There's no Nick Chubb. There's no Kareem Hunt. This is going to have to be a big passing day with Case Keenum now at quarterback. This is a really hard game to pick. Oh, man, this is hard. I'm going to take the um, I'm going to take the Denver Broncos. I like Teddy Bridgewater. I always have. I like Portland Sun. Jerry Judy might be back this week. I'm going to okay. have to check that. But I think he he's either back this week or next week or the week after. I like both of their defenses, but I like the Broncos one more. And with all, just all these injuries, they have a bunch of people questionable. But half of them, at least, are not going to play. All right. Give me, the, give me the Denver Broncos. All right, indeed. The Kansas City Chiefs traveling to Tennessee to face those pesky Tennessee Titans. Who do you like? 
This is a very hard game again for me to pick. The Titans coming off a really good win last week against the Buffalo Bills. Now 4-2 and two Buffalo Bills. And the Chiefs, they haven't looked like the Chiefs, but, you know, they, they, they won last week. Pretty, pretty good win for them. And I'm going to take, take the Titans to go on a little streak against wow. some good teams. Uh, that, of course, that Chiefs defense is not good at all. But, I mean, neither is the Titans. Just, 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 the, the Chiefs have not looked good. Gutsy pick. They have not looked up to their standards. Gutsy pick, indeed. Washington football team, a team in disarray, uh, traveling to Green Bay to, pit place, to uh, face the Packers. Now, I just want to say, it's traveling. Washington is traveling to Green Bay, which is going to be really big because that is a far, that's pretty far, right? I mean, let's look at a it's map. It's pretty far. I'm going to take, um, I mean, I think this is going to be a very good win for the Packers. You know, Aaron Rodgers, ever since after that week one game, he's looked really good. Devontae Adams has looked like Devontae Adams. You know, Jair is out. I think he's out for the rest of the year. Mm. I didn't know it was called. I know for the he's rest on. I know he's on IR. He is on know. IR. I don't know if he's out for the rest of the year. You know, David Bakhtiari, he hasn't played. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the Green Bay Packers by, by a lot. All right, the Cincinnati Bengals travel to Baltimore to play your Baltimore Ravens. Who you like? Why saying your like not your team too? It's hey, both of our teams. I'm completely unbiased. Go Ravens! Ah, this game, this game is tough. This game is tough. It's the four and two Bengals. I don't know if we're gonna take them seriously. I'm gonna just go with the the safe pick. I'm just gonna take my Baltimore Ravens to win this game. You know, this is National Tight End Day on Sunday. Yeah. So Mark Andrews is gonna go off. I hope, like he said, I hope Lamar just keeps doing his thing. You know, just give me the Ravens. Okay. Carolina Panthers travel to New York to play the New York football Giants. Two teams in disarray. Who do you got? This game is going to be, I think, a better game than most people think. (laughs) I think it's going to be a closer game than most people think is what I mean. But I'm still going to go with the favorite here. I am going to go with the Carolina Panthers. Sam Darnold hasn't looked that good in his past couple weeks after a hot start. Because, I mean, it's no CMC. That's really what did it for him. But um, CMC being Christian McCaffrey, for those of you not following geez. the people's game. I mean, who's not going to know that? <laughs> sorry. A lot of people aren't going to know right, that. All right, I'm sorry. That's called football snobbery. Football snobbery? Okay. Yes. Well, well my bad. But um, give, me, give, me, give me the Carolina Panthers. All right. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons travel to Miami, uh-oh, to play the Dolphins. Jeez, I mean, the Dolphins. I know I didn't pick you, but how, still, how do you lose that game? I mean, I mean, it was off the game-winning field goal, but I mean, this, this is the Jaguars we're talking about. They should easily win that game, even though not, I didn't pick them. But um, I am going to take the Falcons. This is going to be Matt Ryan's day this week. He's going to pop off against that sorry Dolphins defense. Mm. All right, the New York Football Jets travel to New England to play the Patriots. That is going to be a blowout win for the Patriots, and I don't even need to say anything much else. I mean, Matt mm. Jones has been the best rookie quarterback so far this season. That defense has looked really good. Matthew Judon looks like a really good signing as of as of the first six weeks. That that team has looked really good for two and four. It's really, 
really good for two and four. All right, Eagles travel to Vegas to play the Raiders. That is going to be uh, – that is a tough game. And I'm going to go with the upset here. Give me the Eagles, man. I really, I really like Jalen Hurts. And I like I like their I like a lot of parts of their defense. Darius Slay is a really fun player. Devonta Smith, the rookie. I like I like the Raiders. I mean, sorry, not the Raiders. I like the Eagles in an upset. This is this is wild, Jacob. All these games are kind of difficult. Although this one less so. The Lions with Jared Goff returns home to Los Angeles to face Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford and the L.A. Rams. Who do you got? This is a revenge game for both teams. This is a, this is a revenge game for both teams. I think it's more of a, a, I think it's more of a revenge game for Jared Goff. Absolutely. Though. I mean, I know Matt Stafford loved it there, and they just traded Jared Goff like he was a piece of scrap. But um, I am going to take the LA Rams easily, easily in a blowout win. I would love to pick them as my bet the house game, but I already picked against the Lions, so. Yeah. I can't do that. Okay. Uh, Chicago Bears traveling to Tampa Bay to play the Bucks. I did just pick the Bears to beat the Packers last week in an upset. That didn't go too well. It's okay, though, because I'm going to pick them again. No, no. I'm just joking. Oh, I almost, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm oh, joking. man. I almost fell over, you crazy boy. <laughs> this is going to be a very, very good Buccaneers win. Tom Brady has looked like an MVP. I don't think he's in the top. I don't think he's... The MVP right now, though, who we're, we're going to see next. He's the MVP, the next person we're going to be oh, picking. Houston Texans traveling to Arizona to face the St. Louis Cardinals. St. Louis Cardinals, huh? It's just they've kept the logo from when they were in St. Louis. It's the same logo that the dang baseball team has. I mean, come on, Arizona. Be, be like the Sidewinders or the Cacti. Now, this is the team that has the MVP. K1 has looked great. Who's K1? Kyler Murray has looked great. DeAndre Hopkins has been DeAndre Hopkins. You know, the defense hasn't been horrible. They've been a, a very good team. I mean, they're 6-0 and for a reason. and They're going to beat them by a lot. They're going to beat the Texans. Wow. Gutsy picks here, man. Gutsy picks? <laughs> that was, I was being sarcastic. Um, and then the next game which I just lost off of my Colts 49ers. Oh, thank you so much. I got it. Colts going to San Francisco to play the 49ers. Sunday night football. The best two and four team in the league is going to win this football game. <laughs> they're both the best two and four teams in the league. No, they're not. That That's the Colts and the Patriots, but well, that's a different argument. And also the, the 49ers are actually two and three. Oh, they're two and three. My bad. They actually had a bye week. But oh, such I football am... snobbery. <laughs> I am going to take the Colts in an upset. I really like how, the way Carson Wentz has been playing. He's he's really underrated as of now. I like Michael Pittman. Jonathan Taylor has looked really good these past couple games. Their defense is good. You know, Darius Leonard, DeForest Buckner. They did actually just lose Julian Blackman for the season. Mm, I saw that. Uh, torn Achilles, I think. That's devastating for that secondary. It's already weak enough with all their injuries back there. But I'm still going to take them in an upset going to, um, going to San Francisco. And then lastly, Monday night. Wow. The New Orleans Saints travel to Seattle, a very difficult place to play, to play the Seahawks and Geno Smith. Who do you got? I actually, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be Geno Smith. It might be Jacob Eason starting for them Ooh. after the Colts cut him, the rook, the last year rookie, 
and now he's on the Seahawks because they signed him. I think it was this That'd morning. Be terrible. They should keep Geno. I would love if they kept Geno, but you know that fumble kind of might have lost him his job there as the backup quarterback if they like Jacob Eason enough. I am gonna take the New Orleans Saints though. You know, Jameis has looked pretty good. Alvin Kamara, he's been good. They've just been they they've been kind of up and down. You know, they do have a winning record, but it's just they gotta they gotta keep up like the consistency. Like they're inconsistent right now. They just they need to have a good win, and this can be like their their good win. I'm gonna take them over the Seahawks. Mm. Well, those are Jake's takes for this week. Uh, Jacob, anything else you want to add to the people right now? No, that was a good episode. That was a fine fine run. Fine run. Yes, and we appreciate all the feedback about the segment, about everything on the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Paul Nepper. Thank you so much for writing the book, The Knicks in the 90s. Thank you so much to uh, my kid Jake for doing the show on two separate segments. I'm going to have to start paying him overtime. Thank you so much to David Tigaboo, the uh, engineer, producer, and all around do everything of this podcast. For everybody out there listening, support the pod. You can write a little review. You can give it a rating. You can tell a friend. All of these things sustain us. You also want to check out that Patreon page as well if you really want to sustain us. Thank you so much to the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.